Amen. How many of you believe that this morning, Grace, that God's grace is enough? All right, four of you. So I'm so excited that you're here this morning, and I, I'm excited that, that, that you're in the house of God this morning, and uh, I hope that, that you're excited to be here, and I even hope that you're excited that the person on your left and right is here. And so we're going to take just a minute, uh, in, in just a minute, to greet one another, but before you do, just want to draw attention to the little tear out in your bulletin. There's two things to mention. First of all, if you're one of our guests, maybe first time, second time guests, and we'd love to know more about who you are, and we'd love for you to fill that out and, and give us some information so we can contact you and get to know you and minister to you. Maybe you're some of our home folks, you have a prayer request, you can put that on there as well. But hey, if you want to join us Wednesday night for our, our dinner, you can uh, fill out that information on, on there and tear that out, put it in the offering plate, or hand it to uh, a minister at the end of the service. Uh, we'd love to to, to get that so, so we can have our, our numbers uh, for, for Wednesday night. Right now, though, find somebody, shake their hand, and let them know that you're excited to be in the house of God this morning.
Here's your seats. My Jesus.
helping us be able to come here and further your kingdom. Amen. things up. I want to invite our children to come forward and look at my bucket here. My new offertory plate. Well, fill it up. Not really. You guys come on sit down. There's nothing in there. Well, there's a little, there's a little bit of dirt in the bottom. Yeah. You want to see what's in it? You, you're free to see what's in it. Not, not much. Yep. Okay, has everybody gotten a chance to look at the bucket now that's empty? I mean, it's just, I didn't put a thing in it. Uh, in fact, I don't know.
know how dirty. I guess it just fell in there. Maybe it was used before. But hey, listen, I got this bucket because, uh, all right, um, there is, there's a, there's activity that we're doing around our church out on the, out on the upward fields. Anybody playing upward? What, or is it basketball? It's tennis. Soccer. We're playing soccer. That's right. So why do I have a bucket? It has to do with upward soccer. Soccer balls? There's no soccer balls there. Hey, yeah. You try to shoot. That's right. You try to kick the ball into this bucket. Now, do you have a question? Yes. Okay. That's right. So you can almost shoot it like a basketball, but with your foot, shoot it up in it. Or you can lay the bucket down on its side, and you can. Now, if I place the bucket right here, not suspended in the air, but let's pretend it's sitting on the ground, and I put a ball right here, would that be easy to kick it into? Yeah, but guess what? You can't do that in the game. You know why? Because if this is the net, you've got to be you got to be far away from the net to kick it in. There's a little there's a little area you can't enter into, and so this is what we do. You you set the bucket somewhere and you back up, back the ball up, and you practice shooting or kicking the ball into the bucket. At least that's what one coach sitting on the front row uh, has been trying to teach our teams. So he says, kick it in the bucket. And, um, and if, if you can get good at kicking it into the bucket, you've got control over the ball and you, can, you, you should be able to score. Now, what happens the farther and farther you get away from the bucket? Does it get easier or, or harder? It gets harder to do, right? Right. But what happens the more and more you practice? That's the goal. You get better. At least you should get better. You keep practicing and keep practicing, and you change a little bit of, of how you kick it. And, and so sometimes we do hard things in order to get better at something. Well, listen. Learning to kick the soccer ball in the right place in this bucket, that reminds me a little bit about, about the way that God works in our life. Listen, look at me. Sometimes difficult things happen or hard things happen, and, and God's using those things to make us better, to make us more like Christ. And so that's really, that's really what I want to teach you today. We, we do hard things sometimes in, in sports or, or games to get better. We, we do those difficult things, and we keep going through it to get better. And sometimes in life, we have hard days. And what we need to do you know, a lot of times is just stop, pray, and, and just thank the Lord that he wants us to be more like Jesus. Okay? Let's pray. Father, sometimes we do hard things, and uh, it if we get through those hard things and we do those things, we, we get better. And we get better at playing soccer, but sometimes we just get better at being people and get better at being more like Christ. And so, Lord, that's why the Bible says we ought to rejoice in our trials because you can help us to become more like Jesus. And that's our goal. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
standing and turn to the book of Acts chapter 14, Acts 14, and ask that if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, I will warn you it's a little bit more lengthy of a passage this morning, and so stand if you're able, but if you need to sit down, that's quite all right. Acts chapter 14, I'm going to begin in verse 1. <clears throat> And it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the Lord of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and to the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. The next few, the next few verses talk about a healing that took place of a, a man who was lame, and, and Paul spoke to him and healed him, picking up in verse 11. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. And preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Continue now, and he, he preached the sermon. Continue now, picking up in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Verse 21, and after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, 
they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Speak now and may we listen. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may have picked up on the fact that this morning I was not reading from the Holman. I was reading from the New American Standard this morning, and so if it was a little more difficult for you to follow along, I do apologize, but I just like the way that, it, that the New American Standard renders, renders this passage this morning. And so I was, was reading from, uh, like I say, from the New American Standard. But here we have a story of Paul and Barnabas, and what's interesting is last week, the story was, uh, the, or, the, or the passage, the, the, the sermon, led us to this idea that they are going to change their ministry, and they're, and they're, they're going to change, they're going to begin to speak to and carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And then we turn to chapter 14, just on the heels of chapter 13, and the first thing it says is that when they entered Iconium, they came to the synagogue of the Jews together. Now, I do believe Paul's focus was still with the, uh, with the Gentiles, but he didn't pass over the Jews. They still needed to hear about the Messiah. But what we have here pretty, pretty quickly, pretty early on in verse 4, I just want to mention this. There are two responses to the gospel. Two responses to the gospel. There were two responses then. There are two responses now. We can say that, first of all, you can be in agreement with what is being spoken and what's being shared, and you can come to a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ because you understand the gospel. Or you can be in disagreement. You see verse 4, but the multitude, the multitude of the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. So those are the responses. You either respond in favor to the gospel, in agreement with it, or you reject the call of the gospel, the, uh, the, the message of the gospel, the call of Jesus on your life, and you're in disagreement. And so that's where we find ourselves. It's what Jesus even talks about one day. They will separate the sheep from the goats. There will be those who are in in faith in Jesus Christ and those who are outside of the faith in Jesus Christ. And our eternities are impacted by that as well. But I want to move on a little quickly because today, today we're going to be doing what I guess is called scriptural gymnastics. That is, we're going to flip and tumble all through the pages of scripture. And so, it'll be music to my ears to hear the pages turning in your Bible or to perhaps see the glow of God's word as it comes up from your iPad. <clears throat> but, <laughs> that's right. Or other tablet, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to have a monopoly on Apple products. But, uh, there's two responses to the gospel. We see that in verse 4. But if, if we keep going, we see really two responses to the manifest power of God. Now, this one may be a little more difficult for us to see today because I don't know if we often recognize the manifest power of God. If you follow along with our, our, our prayer lists and our, our prayer meetings on Wednesday night, you'll see more of the power of God because you see prayers being answered and you see that there's no way that uh, this, this happens. This has to be God working. But two responses to the manifest power of God at this man's healing. So there was a man who was born lame and and, and Paul spoke to him, and he was healed. And it didn't say outright. It doesn't claim here outright that Paul said in the name of Jesus. But it is very uncharacteristic in the book of Acts to see that there's healing taking place apart from the name of Jesus. It, I'm going to say it's 
assumed that it was the power of Jesus working in Paul as this, as this man was healed. And so here's one response. One response to the manifest power of God is that Paul and Barnabas are revered as little g gods themselves. That's one response. It's not unlike the response to Jesus as he fed the 5,000 one day, fed 5,000 men one day, and, and, and they were all, you know, their miracle happened, all their tummies are full, and so that night he sends the disciples on over across the sea, and he, he shows up, and during the night there's some, there's some amazing things that happen during the night, but the next day, guess what? The crowds are there again, and they're essentially saying, it's a new day, we're hungry again, feed us, we're, we're here, and we're just... we're." We want what you have to offer. We want what you have to offer. That's really what's happening here. They're revered as gods, and so now they're bowing down. They want to worship. They want to sacrifice things to Paul and Barnabas. Now, I've read from multiple accounts, multiple historical documents and, and uh, commentators that somewhere around this time frame, maybe 50 or 100 years before this story, in, this, in a neighboring village, there was a story that was circulated about Zeus and Hermes. And the story, was, the story was that there were these two gods that came down, and they visited among the people. And they, were, they, were, they, they had clothed themselves as humans, a little disheveled, a little... Uh, looking like they were in need of something, and they visited house to house to house, and they were constantly rejected. And this story goes that late in the evening, they came to one little, one little quaint cottage, and there was an elderly couple that took them in that night, fed them, and, and, and just allowed them, you know, was very hospitable to them. And so, in turn, these two gods, next morning, all of a sudden, it's not a quaint little cottage, but it's a nice mansion. And all of the other peoples around were flooded and that's the story and so maybe this story is sticking in the memory of of the people who are here before Paul and Barnabas and they're thinking well this has got to be because remember this is a polytheistic culture this has got to be the gods visiting us again no way could they heal someone this must be this is not just humans this must be some of the gods who have visited us and so what they do is they begin to bring sacrifices before Paul and Barnabas they were hailed, they were championed, they were revered as gods. Well, first of all, they, they tore their clothes in anguish to, to show how, uh, just to show that their, their emotions, to, to show how much they were against this idea, this notion that they were gods, to show that they were just regular humans. But not only that, Paul takes this as an opportunity. He takes it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. Now, if you study this sermon and compare it to some other sermons, the sermons that he may preach to the Jewish people, he preaches to Jewish people out of the Old Testament and talks about the coming Messiah and how Jesus fulfills all these. If you look at this sermon, he begins and he talks about the, the, the created world. In, ver, in verse 15, it says, uh, Turn to things to, to, uh, from these vain things, turn from these vain things to the living God. And it says, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he begins at a point in which they understand. And he talks to them there to present the gospel 
to them. So they're revered as gods, but it didn't last too long. It didn't last too long because in verse 19, there were some Jews that showed up, and they started saying things against Paul and Barnabas to the extent, to the extent that they dragged them outside of the city and stoned Paul as unto death. So if one response to the manifest power of God is that they were revered as little g-gods, the other response is that they were demonized as blasphemous. They are characterized as blaspheming the holy God. Two extreme responses to the manifest power of God. These are the two responses, but I want you to notice, well, first of all, they left Paul as dead. They left Paul as dead, but we don't have any indication that he died and was resurrected. Some people would, would say that, but that's not, the, that's not the case that you get here from this passage. It says in verse 20, while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And so it just, maybe he was unconscious. I don't, I don't know the state of his being, but they left him for dead. But he didn't die, and he got up, and he just kept preaching. It's amazing. <clears throat> but look at verse 22 in particular. And this is where I really want to camp out today. Notice what Paul says in verse 22 as he strengthens the disciples, as he encourages them, he, he implores them to continue in their faith. They, it, he and Barnabas went back to all the cities they had visited previously. They kind of backtracked on their way back to Antioch. And he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Maybe your version, maybe the Bible you have says hardships, or it might say troubles, through many hardships or troubles. The word there is a Greek word. It is flipsis. That's, that's a fun word to say. Flipsis, okay? It's T-H-L-I-P. That's the way it starts. Flipsis. Now, I will talk about that in just a moment. But he says, through many tribulations, through many hardships or troubles, we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice what he didn't say. You know what he didn't say? Paul didn't say, woe is me. Why did God call me to this task? Oh, God, where are you? Woe is me. He didn't say that. He was pretty confident that he was doing what God had called him to do. And you get the sense that he counted it as a badge of honor to face these trials, these, these, these tribulations, all in the name of the Lord. So what did he mean by through many tribulations? Like I said, it's a Greek word, philipsis, and if you want to do a, uh, do a word study through the New Testament, I would encourage you to. This word shows up 45 times in the New Testament. I'm not going to read all of those scriptures to you this morning, but I do want to give you just a sprinkling of where these, this word shows up. Sometimes it's a noun, sometimes it's a verb, so just hang with me here. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. For at that time there will be great tribulation, or flipsis, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. John 16, 21. Maybe some of you can relate to this. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a, chi to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering or the flipsis because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering, flipsis, in the world. But take heart. 
I have overcome the world. Acts 9.16, this is now the Lord speaking about Saul. says this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner or fellow partaker in the tribulation. The same word, the same Greek word here is used and is rendered sometimes as suffering, sometimes as tribulation, sometimes as trouble. It's the same concept. Now listen, let's don't overthink this right here. Let's don't overthink this this morning. What Paul is saying is to see the kingdom of God come, it ain't going to be easy. He probably said ain't because he's a good southern boy. I'm just... To see the kingdom of God come, this is not going to be an easy thing. There's going to be a lot of trouble. In fact, this was Jesus' prayer. You remember as he was teaching to pray, Jesus prayed this. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To see thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, it's not just an easy, nice task. There's going to be a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 11, 12, he says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. That doesn't sound like a walk through Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. It's not going to be easy. And listen. Satan doesn't want the kingdom of God to come. He doesn't want you to experience the kingdom of God. If he can prevent the kingdom of God moving in you and through you, he will do anything he can. That includes anything that's violent, anything that is a hardship to keep you from walking according to God's word, from walking and ushering in the kingdom of God. Satan doesn't like it. He will do anything. Here in, with, with Paul and Barnabas, they were, held as, they were held as gods. If they had allowed themselves to be sacrificed to and to reject, if they had not rejected the notion that they were gods, and they could, who knows what would have happened? Satan used that tactic. But then when that didn't work, how about we stone them and prevent them from, from, from preaching this message? And what Paul does is he goes back and he says, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's in a direct result. Sometimes it's a direct result of preaching and proclaiming the gospel. But sometimes, sometimes we look around our world, maybe you read the news or you, or you, you see a report on TV or you just hear somebody at the, the water cooler. And you hear these awful stories of evil in our world. One story that breaks my heart is, is from a while ago. Philip Friedman tells this story. He tells a story that took place in, in, in Europe during the Second World War. The Nazi soldiers had gone into Warsaw, and um, as they were there, they came across this, they saw this little girl, this beautiful little girl, Zoysia. I'm pronouncing it correctly. 
and, and they noticed that she, she had the most beautiful eyes that they had ever seen. And they thought, my family back home or some people back, they, they need to see how beautiful these eyes are. And so they held the girl down and plucked her eyeballs out. And her mom is watching this take place. And you hear stories like this, and I don't share that to make your stomach get in knots. But I think when we hear things like this, and there are far more, there are other stories that just break your heart, make your stomach tie in knots. We want to say, where is God? How could God allow something like this? And the simple, glib answer to the problem of evil in this world that we so often hear is it's just God's will and everything happens for a reason listen to Vance Havner portion of his diary at the time when his wife was facing death Vance Havner wrote this he says whoever thinks he has the ways of God conveniently tabulated analyzed and correlated with convenient glib answers to ease every question from aching hearts has not been very far in this maze of mystery we call life and death he that is God has no stereotyped way of doing what he does he delivered Peter from prison but left John the Baptist in the dungeon to die then he goes on to say at this writing I never knew less how to explain the ways of providence but I never had more confidence in my God I accept whatever he does, however he does it. I mentioned to you, I mentioned to you the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus prays, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I just want to ask you this. If God's will is always being done everywhere, God's will is always being done everywhere in every situation. Why did Jesus have to pray that prayer? Why does Jesus teach us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Why does he teach us to pray that? And now, listen, I just want you to bear with me for, for, for just a minute. Is it possible, is it possible that God's will is not perfectly done everywhere all the time and I think maybe there's another question that, that helps us with that do you always do what God's will is for you do you always accomplish God's will perfectly you see I think we're all messed up a little bit we're all kind of messed up because of sin and I just want us to take a quick journey through scripture in the book of Genesis the book of Genesis, everything was perfect. God had created and everything was perfect. It was just as he desired. And in that, he gave humans to rule over the world, to reign over the world. And God would rule and reign through humans over the world. But, as you may recall, humans sinned. Humans have sinned. Now, could God intervene? Could God have intervened and kicked out Satan 
and restored things maybe the, the way that, that, that they were? I suppose he probably could. I suppose he probably could have restored that. But just because we changed and now, now we have this sin in our life doesn't mean that God changes. And what I mean by that is God has established that it was through a human that he would rule and reign over the earth. And he would still use a human to rule and reign over the earth. If it wasn't through the first Adam, perhaps there would be a second Adam that God would use to rule and reign over the earth. So that eventually, this, this horrible earth that we live on because of sin, this, this, this broken world we live in, that eventually there will be something that the Jewish people understand, there will be shalom would come to the world. A sense of peace, a sense of everything is right. Everything's in its rightful place. There is, you know, everything is, is, is in order. Shalom, everything will be right. So where are we? Is everything right with the world? I don't think you have to look very far to say we're not quite there yet. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the book of Daniel. I just want to talk about a vision uh, from, from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. <coughs> Excuse me. Daniel 7. Uh, verse 9. This is a vision Daniel has. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. His wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. So here we got one. Like the Ancient of Days, who is seated on a throne, and there he is hailed as the one who is forever reigning. Continue, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed so here we have the ancient of days seated on a throne this is the vision and as the vision continues there's one like the son of man who comes up to him and the one that's like a son of man is given the kingdom and and is given reign he's given reign and rule and dominion over everything. It is eternal. It's everlasting. It will not pass away. Verse 16. I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So he's talking about four kingdoms, four great kings from the earth. Continue looking at verse 22. Or 21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Why do I share this with you? There's a vision that Daniel has. It's talking about when everything is set in order and all rule and authority is given to the one 
the Ancient of Days is on the throne and there's one like the Son of Man who is coming to take the kingdom and all of those who are part of that kingdom will begin to rule and reign. One like the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man. Well, that's great. When is all this supposed to happen? Well, there's a title that Jesus uses for himself more often in the Gospels than any other title, and that is the Son of Man. Son of Man. In the book of Mark in chapter 1, John is preaching and he's proclaiming this, The time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here right now, so this is what you need to do. Repent and believe. How could he say the kingdom is already here? That's because the king is here. Jesus is the king. He is the one that is going to rule and reign. He is the one who claimed for himself the son of man, the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel, the vision in Daniel. He's going to rule and reign forever. And so our response is to recognize him as the son of man, the one who's the eternal king, and to repent. To repent from our, from, from our evil ways and believe in the gospel message. That's our response. We're, that's what we are to do. I told you he calls himself the son of man more often than any other title. John chapter 12, verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. What does that mean? to be enthroned, to, to, to be glorified forever. In Luke chapter 22, as he is being led to the uh, cross, they asked him, they asked, who are you, Jesus? And he says this, this is his response. From this moment on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. Wow, you want to talk about blasphemous. If he's really not him, he's claiming that he's the Son of Man. He's going to sit at God's right hand. If you didn't believe that, you would have to understand that as blasphemy. That is why the Jews are so irritated and aggravated and upset with him because he's claiming that he's this son of man that Daniel has talked about that we've studied in the scrolls for all these years. In Daniel 7, 13, it says that the son of man was coming up and he came up to the ancient of days as if he was ascended. We read about that in the book of Acts. And in 1 Corinthians, listen, excuse me, when is all this going to take place? The kingdom is here. I told you who the king was. The kingdom, is, the kingdom of God is here. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 26. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. You see, why doesn't God do something? He is. God is doing something. Does that mean there, all the evil is wiped off the face of the earth? Not right now. By the way, God did that one time, save Noah and his family, and it didn't work. And if he were to do that again, among the first to go would be me and you. If he were to wipe the evil from the face of the earth, I'd be among the first that would be wiped off the face of the earth. But he is doing something. He's using a man to rule and reign, the son of man, Jesus himself. And in 1 Corinthians, we said that he must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet, and the last is death. And then in Revelation chapter 21, 3 and 4, we see this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. 
There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God is doing something. He is ruling and reigning through the power of Jesus Christ. And he will rule, he will rule and reign until every enemy is put under his footstool. And the last of those is death. Yes, it is through Jesus. Jesus is making the world is making the world right. He is ushering in shalom. Well, then why is it taking so long? Well, I believe Matthew chapter 28 holds something for us. Matthew 28, 18 through 21, Jesus tells his church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. And I will be with you always. I believe it's taking longer because the church isn't motivated with the Great Commission as we should be. This is your responsibility and my responsibility. And when we do this, the world changes. Now, again, there are two responses that can happen. But the more often we share the gospel, the more often I believe we'll see a response in favor of the gospel. And the more often the people respond in favor of the gospel, the more often the world changes and the less evil that, that, that people are because it's not about the things you do. It's about the heart that motivates the things that you do. So, Paul and Barnabas, they face a lot of tribulation and trials. What do we do when we encounter tribulations, hardships, and trouble? Well, if we're to be like Paul and Barnabas, we simply preach the gospel. I asked, is God's will always being done? And that may be a huge theological question. But the fact of the matter is, God moves in this world. God's hand always moves in this world. And it blows me away that he would choose to use people to carry out his, carry out his message carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what Paul and Barnabas did whenever they faced tribulation and hardships. They preached the gospel. That's what Jesus has told us to do. Proclaim the gospel, the good news. And this is good news, folks. This is it. Even in the midst of our tribulation, our hardships, Jesus is making the world right. He's making the world right, and that world includes you and me. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I deserve hell. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is making the world right. And I just wonder, would you acknowledge him today? Again, there are two responses to the gospel. Two responses to the gospel. We, we're either in agreement with it, and we turn in saving faith and repentance. We turn away from the evil and the sin in our life and we turn towards Christ or we're in disagreement with it and we continue we continue to walk in the ways that we've been walking what about you let's pray
Father, I want to thank you for this passage this morning. We see responses to the gospel. We see responses to the manifold power of God. And Father, I know that's a big theological question about God's will and, and evil in this world, but really the truth is you are working. And it might just be that when I turn and say, God, why don't you do something that you also turn to me and say, BJ, why don't you do something? God, may I be faithful. Lord, if it's through me that you want to usher in the kingdom and, 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 and I can join with Christ, who is the king, God, whatever you need in my life, I, I want to lay it down before you today. Lord, there may be someone in here today that is not a part of the kingdom because they've never trusted you with their life. I pray that today they would come to know you in a personal way, that they would understand the forgiveness of their sin, the grace that is offered to them, and Father, that they too could be a part of this kingdom that will last forever. It's an everlasting kingdom. Lord, as you speak, may we respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may respond right there in your chair. You may... You may come up and pray at the altar. Maybe, maybe you need somebody to pray with. Whatever it is, I'm available to you. But if you will stand as we sing this last song and as God speaks, you listen. I just want to mention a, a few things 